Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. There are two things here. One is managing customers' expectations. And B is regular communications of what's happening. Those are the two things that fall by the wayside. Make sure you manage your customers' expectations and you manage the communications. You can make a case for the Super League, but that view of value was not the value that their customers, these fans of these clubs, actually were getting out of the, the games in the league. It's a difficult choice, isn't it? Because the company, I'm sure, would, would like to stay neutral. But you then start to go, if I have to make a decision, then how do I do it? And for me, it would be, what do we think our customers would want and employees would want? Hi, this is Colin, and I wanted to ask you a favour. It would really help Ryan and I if you could spend a moment and complete a review of the podcast. Positive reviews help us get out to more people, and we love hearing from our listeners and seeing what people have written. So please, just take a moment and complete a review. Thanks very much for your help. So, Colin, we've from time to time done kind of in the news podcast episodes where we just talk about some some headlines or things that are going on. In There's the news lot- from the 1600s. That's right. Uh, the latest in medieval history <laughs> news is what you come to us. For. We're always up with the times. Now, there, I mean, there are a lot of news stories that aren't about customer experience, but that are kind of about customer experience too. And so we've we've picked some of those out. And we've, we've got a compilation of several of those today, several things that have happened in, you know, in recent months that we thought might be interesting to look at from a customer experience angle. Yeah. And, and as usual, we're trying to look at this from a, my, fam- my famous, the question I always like asking, which is, so what? What does this mean from a customer experience perspective? So I'll start and I'm, I'm actually going to um, switch things up on you. Colin, I agreed on an order right before we launched this this episode and, and I'm gonna change it arbitrarily, Colin, after I agreed to the order that uh, Okay. Is this the news? Yeah. The news <laughs> is I no longer respect Colin Shaw and I've got to tell you, mate, that's not news. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um no, the one I want to talk about first is the European Super League, soccer league. So th- this was news by the time this podcast post it will have been a few months ago, so I'm sure uh, a lot of people didn't even remember it, but the the idea was that you know European soccer is played within a certain structure that's fairly historical, goes back a long time, and the owners of a few of the the most popular teams decided to form a an additional soccer league that would kind of layer on top of it, where teams would play across countries more, so the the top two or three teams in England would every year play the top two or three teams in, you know, like Germany and, and 
You know what, mate? I, I love the way that you're struggling with this story. <laughs> I, so I should I should be clear um, before we talk about this. When it comes to soccer and European soccer in particular, I could not possibly care less if you paid me. Like if somebody paid, like, here's $100, Ryan. Could you manage to care less about European soccer than you do right now? I'm gonna I'm gonna make all the corrections to your story as soon as you've finished. <laughs> I was I was just in three or four seconds of handing this back over to you, Colin, because I'm sure that I'm getting lots of wrong. But that's part of what made me interested in this story because when it first came up, I did not care. <laughs> I was not interested at all. And then there were protests. People were protesting, and they were protesting like the home office of their own favorite team. So they yes. were protesting the owners of the teams that they loved. And also some of the protests seemed to be that they wanted to play terrible no-name teams. So like this was the most British thing I've ever heard of <laughs> on a topic I didn't get on. And it wasn't until I read an economist's story about it well into this scandal yeah but i started you, you, you to obviously understand. just didn't read it very well though that's <laughs> that's, that's, that's how i like to get my sports news is filtered through the economist <laughs> filtered through the economist i'm a yeah. true sportsman colin <laughs> so why don't you tell me the nuance that i've missed here and I, I did come around to thinking that it was an important story and also an important customer experience story so so and you're right so so let me ask you a question first why was it an important customer experience story so people don't don't sit there and listen to us we're on about football for a moment well so i'm going to need you to correct the many things wrong i'm about to say but my impression of the story was that the owners of the team misunderstood the value that their fans got out of the teams so the assumption was well, these fans of, say, like Manchester United, they want to see their team play the best teams in the world because that'll be the best soccer that you can watch and it'll be very exciting. And what they discovered after <laughs> embarrassing themselves, frankly, um, is that that wasn't the value, that their fans, in fact, value tradition a lot more. And and there was also like kind of an egalitarian streak in it. So, again, correct me. Yeah, wrong, no, but... no, you're, you're, you're right. And let me pick it up there. Please do. Please rescue me <laughs> from the so, hole I've dug. So I, I think the essence of the story, as Ryan rightly pointed out, is about understanding your customers Yeah, and, and, and thinking you know better, basically. Yes. So basically, it was the, it's the European Super League. And there are there were 12 teams. Six of them were British teams. And for a number of years now, they've been talking about setting up this Super League, okay? There is currently a, a, a European championship, which is played by um, across Europe, okay? And it's normally the, the the top, well, it varies per league, but the top, you know, three or four teams of each league across Europe go into the, the European Champions League. The important point here is that, so it wasn't being played in addition to the Champions League, it would be played separately to the Champions League, all right? The important point here is, and this is, again, the key learning here is understanding the culture of your customers and understanding the culture of different countries. And we, we actually did a podcast on that uh, a little while ago. So the main issue was, was simply this. In the UK, as in Europe, teams get relegated. 
Now, I know relegation is not a word that in American sport gets used very much, uh, if I mean, at all. It sounds like a very legalistic term, which is how <laughs> I like my sports. <laughs> there are four professional leagues in the UK, okay? Premiership, Championship, League One, League Two. Basically, the bottom two teams out of the Premiership get demoted into the Championship at the end of the end of the season if they lose, yeah, if they come bottom of the league. And the bottom, in fact, it's bottom three teams, I apologise. Bottom three teams get relegated and the, the top three teams from the championships get promoted, okay? And therefore, the, the, the good thing about that, and that's why it's been for literally centuries, certainly I think soccer started in 1850 or something stupid, it causes just as much excitement at both ends of the league. So at the end of the season, it could be, you know, like this season, Manchester City have come top and they've won it by quite a few points and it's a bit boring. But at the bottom of the league, you know, there's loads of struggles and will this team go down? Will that team go down? And, you know, what are the implications and blah, 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 blah. But the, the key part about all of this is it's it's on merit, okay? So you have a team like Leicester City, and I'm going to have to be careful not to waffle on about this because we'll be spending half an hour talking about this one. <laughs> You've got a team like Leicester City who have never really been a sort of a popular team, but through good financial management, through stroke of luck, you know, three or four years ago, won the Premiership. So the Liverpools, the Manchester United, the Manchester City came underneath them, but they won it, okay? So it was really the whole principle of the European Super League would be that these 12 teams would be in a league. It doesn't matter if you come bottom. Actually, there were teams like Arsenal who uh, wouldn't even be in Europe next year because they hadn't qualified. In other words, coming part of the, the top four. So why in the bloody hell should they be in it? Because you know there were other teams that were ahead of them. And it was just that whole cultural thing of, actually, it's the best teams that should be playing, not the biggest teams that should be playing. And again, as you rightly said, that is totally against the tradition of the way that soccer has been enacted over the years. The really interesting bit was there was absolute unanimous condemnation of it. I mean, literal street protests. Yeah, People street were, protests. Yeah. Literally, the government came out and said, <laughs> we think this is totally wrong. And literally within, I think, about three days, I think Chelsea were the first team that said, uh, we think we're pulling out. And then everybody pulled out because of all of this. And and the other interesting part here is that most of those teams are owned not by British people anymore. They're owned abroad in one way or another. Um, two or three of them are in, owned in, in America. The Glaciers own Man United, for instance. Owned by Americans who own other sports Teams yeah, but you can understand are in that culture of going, well, we're in the NFL and, you know, if you come bottom of the NFL, it doesn't really matter and, you know, you just play the same teams and, you know, et cetera. Uh, that just is just not the way it's played in the UK. And so, again, bringing it back around to why we thought this was an interesting customer experience story to tell, you can make a case for the Super League. Like, I, you know, regardless of what happens year to year, there are these six or 10 or 12 teams across Europe who sell by far the most merchandise. You got the most people buying their jerseys all over the world. Uh, these are the clubs that people care about and the ones that they want to follow. And you know, even if they have an off year, it's always gonna be Manchester United. You know what I mean? 
and yet, and so you can understand from that perspective, it's like, well, yeah, these clubs are different. Let's put them in a league together where people actually want to watch them. But that view of value was not the value that their customers, these fans of these clubs, actually were getting out of the, the games in the league. The irony I found was that Arsenal, who won't be in Europe next year, even their fans were protesting that they shouldn't be setting up the Super League, which is effectively, you could argue, is sort of shooting themselves in the foot because they wouldn't be playing against the Real Madrids and the Juventuses and people like that. I mean, there was there was a part of this story too, once I understood it, once The Economist explained it to me in economic terms, that was actually very heartening because part of the value that these English soccer fans got out of the sport was the egalitarianism, was this merit-based approach where you had the the fans of even these, you know, fantastic teams who won every year saying, no, no, we want to go and sit in the rain in these tiny stadiums of our rival teams because essentially because they deserve a chance too. Like they deserve a chance to prove that they're better than us, even if they haven't been for the last 40 years. Yes. Well, just for the listeners benefit i i support a team called luton town who are in the championship and and to be clear colin you are literally their only fan right i mean it's just you i i I phoned them up the other day and i said what time's kickoff and they said what time can you get here (laughs) (laughs) in fact when you go and watch luton the players don't have their names on their shirts the crowd do (laughs) (laughs) there are my only two jokes it's just more efficient that way (laughs) So let me talk about vaccine passports. We were quite hot off the press when we talked about vaccine passports to start off with. And it's interesting the way that this seems to have gone because vaccine passports, both in the UK and the US, seem to be gaining more sort of credibility and people saying, yes, you can come into our store if you've if you've had a vaccine. I know in the States recently, it's been, you don't have to wear a mask if you've had the vaccine. The interesting bit clearly is, how do they know that the people that aren't wearing a mask have all had a vaccine, which I'm sure there are many of them that, that don't have. Well, that, I mean, that's the justification for the passport, right? The idea that you yes. now would have documentation proving that you've gotten the vaccine and so therefore you could have special privileges like not wearing a mask. Yes. Uh, and the same is then going to be applying for different things in in the UK as well. So having a some form of passport to go to some type of venues, I'm sure you've you've heard of some of the tests that have been happening with live venues where they've had sort of three thousand people in a in a venue, but all of them have had to have had massive you know COVID tests days before and COVID tests at the venue and and, and afterwards etc. So that seems to be increasing. Yes, the last uh, Saturday Night Live of this season was the first this year that had a full studio audience. But they mentioned that everyone in the audience was vaccinated. So I mean, I, I don't know if they had an official passport of some kind, but clearly people had to prove that they'd been vaccinated so they could go to that event. The interesting part for me is that while there is some evidence that something like a passport is gaining some speed, there's also major pushback. So Florida and Alabama at the time of this recording have passed laws saying that vaccine passports would be illegal there, so that companies would not be allowed to 
request verification of some kind. So th there's pushback on that side as well. So Yeah. The interesting one, Ryan, that I wanted to talk about was with the growth of the economy, we've started to see a shortage of materials. So we're, we're having a new roof put on our house in, uh, in Florida and, you know, um, placed the order and the guy basically went, yeah, you know, thanks very much, but we're not going to be able to do this for two or three months because we can't get all the roofing materials. Isn't that interesting? I mean, yeah. as far as like effects of the pandemic, I would not have guessed roofing materials yeah. and microprocessor chips and lumber would be like major disruptions because of a you know, flu-like pandemic. But here we are. The Intuitive Customer is being brought to you by Beyond Philosophy. Your frontline teams should be trained on how they can practically influence customer decision using some of the psychological techniques discussed in these podcasts. To understand Beyond Philosophy's unique approach to the training of frontline teams, just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash employee training. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash employee training. Think about all the backlogs on healthcare and I was hearing the other day that, and this again is in in the UK, that there's massive shortage of, um, you know, or there's so many people trying to go to the dentist now, and how are they going to cope with that? And I, in the National Health Service here, obviously a number of operations have been put back, and you know you start thinking about, well, how the hell are they going to catch up with that? You know, and then you start thinking, well, okay, probably a good time to be selling healthcare insurance in the UK because there are going to be people that what will you know will just go out and pay for it rather than wait for the National Health Service. You know, so I think there's going to be just such massive effects with all of these things. But from a customer experience perspective, I think the really important thing is, and this is the message I want people to take away from this story, is just managing customers' expectations and communication. Because I'm I'm absolutely convinced if we just take our roof in Sarasota, we've got a date, but I'm also pretty sure that date's going to shift. Yeah. <laughs> Our next door neighbor is having a new block paving on their drive. When we saw them a couple of months ago, he said, oh, we're having this new block paving done. Went out and saw him a couple of days ago. He's having all the, the, the blocks were being delivered because they'd been delayed because of the shortage. And he said, I wasn't told any of this lot was turning up. It just turned up, you know, and, it, and now I phoned the supplier and they didn't even know it was turning up. <laughs> so the point I'm trying to make is for me, there are two, two things here. One is managing customers' expectations. And B is regular communications of what's happening. And typically, in this type of economy that is growing rapidly, those are the two things that fall by the wayside. So if you're involved in that, if you've if your organization have got shortages, make sure you manage your customers' expectations and you manage the communications. I think that's great. It's also interesting to look and see how shortages are managed differently in different industries or for different product lines. So for basically from an economic standpoint, there's kind of two ways you can handle a shortage. One is by jacking up the price so that it gets to the point where price now again equals demand. The other way is to ration. So for example, in the, the roofing tiles example, your roofer could have said, sure, we can get it done next week like you want. It's going to cost $4,000 more than we normally charge because we just don't have very many supplies on hand. Sure. The other thing they can do is is ration and say, 
uh, we'll do it, but we have to wait until there's more things coming out. So lumber, for example, has not rationed. They haven't limited the supply. It's just exorbitantly expensive right now. Sure. Uh, on the other hand, things like roofing tiles, they are apparently rationing. The challenge for me with the roof, if he'd turned around and said it's going to cost another $4,000 more, that feels like price gouging. Yeah. I'm not a lawyer, so I, I couldn't tell you the legal definition, but sure. I am a consumer psychologist and I can tell you it absolutely feels terrible yes. and customers would react very negatively to that. They they usually, nobody's happy about rationing, but it is almost always going to be less of an unpleasant reaction than it would be if you had instead raised the price. Yes. No, absolutely. So I would go with the former rather than the latter. Yes, that will almost always be the case. I think in the case of uh, lumber, it's a little bit different because it's. I think it's just more diffused. Like lumber prices are just up everywhere across the board. And the price increase starts kind of essentially at the lumber mill from what I understand. And so the price is then cascaded through. Yeah, I, I guess it's also whether that is a norm as it were. Because as you were thinking about it, I was thinking about gas prices. So gas prices go up and down with the availability of gas, basically. But roof prices, it it would feel wrong and other things if they were suddenly to increase in price because of that. Yeah, and, and roofing is another interesting example because there are roofing emergencies where there's a problem and it needs to get fixed right away. But a lot of times it's just that your roof is kind of wearing out and it's time to do it. So if it's something that can be postponed, then even if you tried to raise prices, you might find a significant portion of your customers would be willing to wait you out. You never know. I never thought I would be doing a podcast where I was talking about roofing. Oh, really? This is my third roofing <laughs> podcast this week. <laughs> uh, yeah, I started an independent roofing podcast. I forgot to tell you about <laughs> We're talking about Ryan's favorite subject. And do you remember from a few episodes ago, um, listener, when we were talking about privacy, Ryan said that he was boring. I don't think so, do you? Thank you, <laughs> Right, last topic you were going to talk about, or we were yes. going to talk about. So the, the, Georgia has been an interesting place to live over the last several years, politically. It's been kind of a political hotbed, which I was, I've not been used to. I've never lived in a swing state before. So one of the, the implications of that for businesses is that businesses have been pulled into a series of political decisions or taking political stances that it was very clear the companies wanted no part in, and yet they were not able to stay neutral. So I'll give you a couple of quick examples. Several years ago, the NRA was was starting to, the National Rifle Association, which is a, a gun lobbying group in the United yeah. States. Do we say was? Or, or uh, is they are still around, bankrupt. but they <laughs> declared bankruptcy from what I understand. Yeah. So they were suffering from some bad PR. And so some of the companies that associated with them in the past had started to distance themselves. And Delta Airlines decided to no longer offer NRA members a discount on certain types of flights. So this was a, a program that extended to lots of different organizations and companies. So you know, if you were a member of the American Association of Retired People, the AARP, maybe you could get a discount. Or, and Delta essentially changed the policy so that a lot of these organizations no longer got discounts. 
but it became political very quickly because the NRA is, is a politically conservative group. And so conservatives saw this as an attack on conservatives. Delta was trying to do something kind of even handed and it, it got very difficult. Delta also got pulled into the kerfuffle over the Georgia voting laws, which passed recently, which restricted the ability to vote in some ways. And again, they tried to stay out of it. They tried to stay politically neutral, but because Delta's headquarters is in Atlanta, the Home Depot also who has headquarters in Atlanta, activists pulled them in. They said, look, you need to take a stand on this. It's not acceptable to be neutral. If you support your employees who live in Georgia, then you should come out against these laws. And then people who are in support of the laws got angry when they ended up saying anything. The point I'm raising here is it seems to me like it will be increasingly difficult for companies to stay neutral on political issues as they've wanted to do in the past, in decades. Yeah, and as I was listening to the story as as well, I was thinking it's a difficult choice, isn't it? Because the company, I'm sure, would, would like to stay neutral. But you then start to go, I, I started to think about it from a, well, if, if I have to make a decision, then how do I do it? And for me, it would be, what do we think our customers would want? Yeah. Now, with Delta, it's obviously, and employees would want, not just customers, actually. But, you know, it was making me think of a sort of a different industry where if there was some, you know, environmental product that you were selling, it would make sense that you your values were for therefore for the environment and therefore if there was some environmental legislation coming down that you supported that you know even if it was controversial because that feels like it's on brand doesn't it Mm -hmm. but i guess the challenge with someone like uh, delta is they're all over the place and their customers are diverse they serve such a huge segment of the market I mean, there's a a famous Johnny Carson quote. Johnny Carson was a a late night TV comedian, and he was famously very politically liberal. And yet none of that was on his show. He he did not do political humor. He stayed very neutral. And somebody asked him about it once. And he said, hey, Republicans watch TV too, right? And that, that was the ethos of companies for decades and decades, which is like, if, if we have to take a political stand, we're going to inevitably alienate a large group of people. So let's not do it. Let's stay out of politics. And increasingly, it's impossible to stay out of politics. So my advice would be for firms to think about this and you know, figure out who the customers you're serving are and what's important to them. Figure out what's important to you as a company in terms of your culture and what you can credibly claim. You know, When these petroleum companies start talking about their green bona fides, like I, nobody's buying that, right? So you need to stick with what you can credibly claim. But, you know, there's arguments to be made that neutral ground is eroding. And so it's better for you to stick a claim and stick behind it rather than kind of bounce around and, and be completely reactionary when these events come up. And if I was talking to a client about this, I would be saying, you know, whatever stance you're taking, it needs to be on brand. Yeah, it needs to support the van and the values that the organization has. You need to think about the effect upon your employees, because if you're trying to implement something that 70% of your employees disagree with, then you got a problem. And the other part, obviously, is just the customer is, you know, well, again, what's the breakdown of the customers? So go back to Johnny Carson, you know, well, is it 
only 5% of conservatives that listen to him because maybe you can afford to lose 5%. Or, yeah, or more to the point, maybe you wouldn't be able to keep them without alienating some other group who might be larger. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you're forced in this situation, are you going to upset 5% or are you going to upset 60%? You know, in other words, the more conservative and liberal if he was from a liberal uh, perspective. Uh, but you get the point. It's where's the majority, you know, and, and for me, again, it would be trying to quantify that. And I guess when I think about it as well, it comes into that framing part as well, doesn't it? it it's then how do you articulate the stance that you are taking? Yeah, I mean, most kind of attributes of products and services have flexibility around the framing. I mean, one example I, I used to talk to my students about this is that, you know, the difference between Prius and Tesla. So, you know, Prius was a, a hybrid car and, and now have a lot of electric vehicles under the Prius brand. Tesla is an electric car company. And yet the, the positioning and the framing of those attributes are completely different. So Prius is a very environmental friendly framing where this conserves gas and therefore is good for the environment and good for society. Whereas Tesla's framing of their the the same attributes essentially is much more around performance and around kind of style and being technologically innovative. Yeah. One of these is going to resonate with certain groups of, of people with certain political beliefs more than another. And so my advice on this is essentially, you know, going back to Colin, your your framework about being deliberative as opposed to being naive or being deliberate, I guess, instead of being naive. This is something that we firms can no longer kind of just let wash over them. I think they need to be much more deliberate about this stuff and much more strategic and bake it into the company more. I agree. So we hope that's been of use. Just three topics that came up in the news that, as Ryan said, are not particularly, you know, on the face of it, you don't go, this is about customer experience. But when you do think about it, it they actually have got really good, important elements of customer experience. So any last pearls of wisdom from you, Ryan? No, just in the name of efficiency, I know that, Colin, you ordered some specialty roof tiles for your home, the, the bright pink. And I'd really love to talk to you more about that on Hamilton's Roofing Podcast. So I don't know if we could set up a time. I'd love to do it. I think I'm, I'm busy for the next seven years. Uh, well, I've, I've got six years of guests already booked. It's an extremely popular podcast. Which, which, we'll is, incident, which is incidentally when my roof is going to be installed. <laughs> That's in anyway, see, it's, it's all coming together. <laughs> all right, everyone. Nice talking to you and talk to you next week. Cheers. Just as a reminder... Please, could you complete a review of the show, and that would really help us. Thanks very much. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.